London is and has always been a place of passion. Londoners are passionate people who rarely do things by halves. I mean, for example, right now in 2023, the mayor of the city has introduced a controversial charge upon high emission vehicles driving within the city limits, and we've seen a small campaign of civil disobedience and deliberate sabotage of the cameras used to monitor such things. That's so London. That is somewhat timeless. I mean, regardless of the modern debates about the legality of vandalism or the, the merits of this emission zone in the first place, away from all these modern trappings, what we're seeing is London responding to a situation as London traditionally always has, with passion, usually with slightly raised voices, maybe a tad overdramatically. This is so London. And that passion has always been here. And in this chapter, we're going to look at some fine examples of London's passion. Hi there, my name is Saul, your host, narrator and guide to the story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city in a linear format. We have reached the year 1122 and are deep in the reign of Henry I. It's time to return our focus onto all things London as we explore a decade where the city begins to show its passions. A chapter about miracles, weird foreigners making prophecies, saintly cures for insomnia, and a little bit of the Crusades coming to visit. Welcome then to chapter 60 of the story, The Passions of London. I'm going to start this chapter with a little observation from myself, who's been narrating this story for 60 chapters now. I can't help but feel, as we move into the beginning part of the 12th century, that London's defiant spirit, the one who had chosen kings of England like Harold Harford, or who had resisted the great invaders, the likes of Knut Sven's Forkbeard and William the Conqueror, that, that spirit that seemed to be starting to come back. Nothing big or flashy was happening, not yet. But you sense it. There was something in the air. Financially in this period, London wasn't a patch at what it had been, but it was still plodding along and doing better than it had. But maybe it was because they just had Queen Matilda, Henry I's brilliant first wife, being based in nearby Westminster for so long, you just sense that London was beginning to raise its head again. Also, we have to take on board the fact that the city was growing and the inhabitants needed to sort out the issues caused by that because no one else was going to do it. So yes, London is definitely starting to become more hmm, bold, shall we say? Now, the first bit of evidence I have to back up this feeling of mine is a small event that took place sometime between the years 1122 and 1127, although we're not sure when exactly. During this era, the city itself began renting a small plot of land 
from the canons of St. Paul's Cathedral. The rent was two shillings a year, and the renting of this land and its location is traditionally seen as the earliest references to London's Guild Hall. The Guild Hall will become one of London's most important locations, and to be blunt, many a future episode will be spent with us having long hours talking about the Londoners who will stride along its corridors. Guild Hall was to become the administrative centre of all things London over the next few hundred years, and the heart of London during this dark age and especially going beyond that. However, I do need to be a little bit precise. Those rent records found in St. Paul's are all we have to say about it being here at this time. And it is enough for me to mention it now and start, but the exact location at this time for the centre of London's governance, we don't know for sure. And we don't even know if this site, the Guildhall, was being used now or would be used later in the way it was. What we do know is, is that the Museum of London Archaeological Service, MOLAS, dates the earliest parts of the current incarnation of Guildhall to the years 1411, so we're still nearly 200 years away from that. The location we're talking about, where the Guildhall is now, and back in this 12th century where the city was renting from the canons of St. Paul's, is located directly above where the Amphitheatre of Londinium used to stand. And we know some have suggested that the old amphitheatre had been used for folk moots by the residents of Londonwick and Londonburg. So maybe this was indeed the traditional gathering site for London's public forum, and this is where they built the Guildhall upon. Or maybe not. The problem is, is that the location and the origin of Guildhall are now steeped and smeared in London's own myths. And some of these myths that Londoners tell each other sound really reasonable. Like, for example, the idea that there was a hall here originally, before uh, the Normans took over, where the citizens paid their taxes, a geld hall, referring to the old English term geld or payment. Other myths about it sound less reasonable. For example, the one that said this had been the site of a palace built by the mythic Brutus of Troy when he'd established this city in ancient times. But the bottom line is that the archaeological evidence shows that where today's Guildhall is, there was no substantial activity on that site from the 5th until the 12th century. So with the physical evidence we have, it had just been a marshy depression in the ground where a Roman amphitheatre had once stood, and it had been filled up in the years that had passed. And those records from St. Paul suggest that that's something that started in the 12th century, sometime around the mid-1120s, could have been the start of using this location to be the administrative hub of London. So I'm going to start mentioning it from now on, but give you that whole preamble. What we do know was built in London around the year 1123, however, was something far more concrete, even if its origins were decidedly way more mystical. Arguably, one of London's most important churches ever was consecrated now. And to understand that story, we need to understand the tale of a former courtier of King William Rufus, a man called Raheri. 
There exists a Latin manuscript where Raheri describes the events of his life up to and including the building of this church. He begins by openly declaring that he was a man who suited the court of King William Rufus, like Renaud Flambard. Raheri was given over to the acquisition of wealth and the sin of avarice and pride. But as is often the case, as we find in this era, life and circumstances caused him a change of heart. He became more pious in his devotions towards the Almighty, and so Rahiri decided to dedicate himself to a life in the service of Christ. To atone for his previous sinful ways, Rahiri took it upon himself to go on a pilgrimage to ancient Rome, and there to see what God had in store for him. But his journey was difficult, and along the way Rahiri fell seriously poorly, and as he lay upon his sickbed, Rahiri was visited by a vision of a saint who spoke unto him and said, quote, I am Bartholomew, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who have come to help thee in thy straits and to unlock for thee the secrets of heavenly mystery. For thou shalt know that I have chosen a spot in the suburb of London at Smithfield, where in my name Thou shalt found a church, and there shall be the house of God, the tabernacle of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Ghost, the spiritual house the Almighty Lord shall inhabit, sanctify, glorify, and preserve unspotted for ever and ever." Unquote. This Saint Bartholomew was pretty ambitious. He goes on to say, quote, For everyone who being converted and penitent shall pray in this place shall be heard in heaven, or, seeking with a perfect heart help from any tribulation, without doubt shall obtain it. To those who knock with pious longing at the door, attendant angels shall open the gates of heaven, receiving and offering to God the prayers and vows of a faithful people, unquote. Now, while Rahiri was no doubt struck by this vision of an actual apostle and his direction to build a church for him in a suburb of London, we must take on board that Rahiri had been a courtier and no doubt understood the um, expenses involved in such undertakings. But he need not have worried, because St. Bartholomew was already ready for any such doubts. And before Rahiri could even voice them, the vision added, quote, nor doubt at all with anxious mind concerning the expenses of this building. Merely apply diligence. Mine shall be to provide the cost necessary for directing and completing the fabric of this work, and to proclaim the place acceptable to God and myself with very manifest signs and tokens." Unquote. Well, that's covered the financial side then, Bartholomew. Cheers for that, mate. It must be said that at the same time, three wise men from Greece were in London. And why were three wise men from Greece in London at this time? Please don't ask awkward questions. Anyway, the three wise men from Greece had decided to come visit London and got to Smithfield and fell prostrate upon their knees before the site of where the church would be. We must understand this was just a muddy field at the time. And when the locals sort of went, um, excuse me, what the hell are you foreign types doing on your knees in a muddy field? They replied they were going to build a great church to God here. 
as much as I will always take a light-hearted, somewhat sceptical modern tone about such things, I will add a reminder, as I explained in depth back in chapter 58, veneration of saints and the deep faith in God were foundation stones for people of this time to make sense of their rather inherently cruel world. And so it is clear that Rahiri took this duty seriously. Of course, he had an immediate problem. Smithfield was not really suited to build a church upon. It was, to quote Rahiri, quote, very foul and almost all times abounded with filth and muddy water. And the part which was above the water was allotted to the hanging of thieves and the punishment of others who'd been condemned by judicial authority, unquote. And yet, filled with fire and passion, Rahiri began constructing a church here upon this site. He started the project alone, apparently considered either mad or a simpleton by the residents. But in time, he, quote, won to himself bands of children and servants. And by their help, he easily began to collect together stones, unquote and he used these to build the church. The stones came from across London, sourced from various sites, and the impression you gain is one where somehow this church, built in a marsh to the north of the walls, became a collective endeavour. This was to be London's church, a place of its devotion and its passion. The site was originally the King's Market, and Rahiri needed to gain the King's permission but Henry I, for all his sins, was never one to forego a chance to grant gifts to religious projects, and so he granted the plot of land to Rahiri, and work began in earnest. When you read the 12th century documentation about the foundation of this church, you gain certain indelible impressions. The first was that this was different from the other churches in the city, and indeed this church was becoming crucially important and part of a new trinity of churches. If St. Paul's was the seat of the bishop, the place of a great stone edifice that would be the formal city cathedral, and if the abbey down on Westminster was to be the place where the kings would be crowned and buried and almost the church of the state, then this church, St. Bartholomew's, would be the place of great and fervent passion. This would be London's home of the miraculous. And indeed, in that foundation document you read very soon, almost immediately after it began being constructed and built and had attracted priests to, quote, live under regular rule, unquote, with Rahiri as the prior, we begin to see a steady stream of miraculous events taking place in quick succession. And in the miracles, we read and gain insights into the lives of London's poor and overlooked, people who had nothing and whose face perhaps was the most ferocious. Crucial to the success of St. Bartholomew's was a man called Walmer. He was, quote, oppressed with a grievous and long-standing disease, unquote, which manifested itself in the fact that his, quote, legs clave to his side, unquote. And he basically was well known for supporting his weight and dragging himself along 
on two small stools under his hands, his legs dragging dead behind him. Walmer had been like this for apparently 30 years, and he was well known, especially as he used to hang around St. Paul's and beg for alms, no doubt may have been one of those maybe worried, given the time he'd spent doing this, by the packs of dogs that once congregated in St. Paul's, as we covered a few chapters ago. The story goes that hearing the reputation of this new church being built out in the suburbs, the friends of Walmer carried him to Smithfield in a basket, where they bundled him before the altar, and he lay prostrate on the floor. In a remarkably short time, his legs straightened and, quote, he was seen to go forth as a new man, unquote, cured. As well as causing a passionate, ecstatic reaction from all those who witnessed this, the miracle of curing and healing such a well-known, pitiful figure was like lightning. The news of it, quote, was forthwith published through the whole city and by its widespread report greatly kindled men of both orders, cleric and layman. Thereupon, noble matrons of the city watched there with nightly vigils. Clergy and people rushed in crowds of great devotion of mind and readiness of heart and they thronged to the place, unquote. The miracles then began appearing thick and fast. A woman with a swollen tongue, so bad, quote, she could not shut her mouth at all, unquote, was cured and healed there. A boy called Osborne, who suffered what sounded like a terrible disability, quote, whose right hand claved to his left shoulder, but his head lay immovable, pressed down upon his hand from his shoulder, nor his head nor his hand could be severed, unquote, came before the altar, and his prayers were answered, and he attained, quote, freedom from his limbs, unquote, and was cured to walk away to more ecstatic reactions. A blind child was brought to the church by his parents, but then cried aloud, blood pouring from his sightless eyes, and his vision was restored. A young servant of a man called Eustace de Brock, a boy named Waymond, attended the church. Waymond was well known for being mute and have never, apparently, ever spoken. And then one evening he suddenly starts speaking aloud of the virtues of the apostle. You have the miracle of Godini, another cripple who was unable to stand, whose legs were cured, and the fame of the church grew even more. A man from Norwich who was said to have suffered from insomnia for seven years, so badly that his health had begun to fail, he had aged dramatically and was now destitute, preyed upon the relics of St. Bartholomew and thereupon fell into a restful and healing sleep. More cripples like Nicholas, an attractive boy, or Adwin, the carpenter from Dulwich, they came and were healed. And again, as I mentioned two chapters ago, not one of these miracles were caused by any priest or minister laying their hands upon the sick. Agency lay with these poor souls. They prayed, and the saint heard them. And thus, St. Bartholomew's grew in stature and status. In time, it became a place known 
for the treatment and the healing of the sick and had an accompanying hospital built alongside it. And in time, this hospital, St. Bart's, was to become one of the great institutions of healing in London. The Church of St. Bartholomew the Great remains to this day and actually this year celebrates its 900th birthday. It's an immense place, a thriving and warm community of Christians in London today. Its online services are really interesting, with old-school Latin rites being eagerly watched by younger audiences. But back then, 900 years ago, it was more than just a church. It was the fulcrum of the faith of London. It had become an ecstatic focus of the city, raising its head and allowing it to find its voice. It was a place that gave agency to Londoners. Not that the other existing churches in London were not being busy around this time. In 1125, we know that Holy Trinity Priory over in Aldgate was granted jurisdiction over the Church of St. Batoth without Aldgate, whose name suggests it was located just outside the city walls, just beyond Aldgate. Batoth was a popular saint in London, having died 400 or years or so previously, and he was considered the patron saint of boundaries. Yes, that sounds like a weird thing to be the patron saint of, but it had its purposes. There were three churches in London at this time dedicated to St. Bartolph, and all of them were placed near the city gates. So we just had the one I mentioned at Allgate, and there was one in Bishopsgate, and another down in Billingsgate by the docks. And over on nearby Tower Hill in the year 1128, a new chapel was built just outside the walls of the White Tower. It was called the Chapel of St. Peter's Ad Vincula, or St. Peter's in Chains. And this has led many to speculate that what this chapel was created for was for the people imprisoned in the tower. But given so far there'd only been one recorded case of a prisoner in the tower and he'd escaped, it is dubious if this claim was correct. I will say the status of St. Bartolph without Allgate and St. Peter's Ad Vincula are going to become important, but in another chapter. But while the miracle factory over in Smithfield that was St. Bartholomew's the Great was maybe a manifestation of London becoming somewhat bolder and finding agency through religious means, it wasn't the biggest news regarding matters spiritual and political of this period. That, I feel, was found in the arrival into London of a delegation of the Knights of the Temple of Solomon of Jerusalem. The Knights Templar. The Knights Templar exact arrival in London is a question of some debate. I've seen at least one book, swear blind, it was 1118, which is kind of impossible. While most sources swear blind, it was 1128, but some say it could be as late as 1138. While there is uncertainty, the largest consensus is towards the 28 era, and that's where I be dated from, beginning a 175-year-long relationship between the order and the city. The reason I favour the date of 1128 is because of the historical records we have at the time. Uh, see, over in the Holy Land, you had this figure called Hughes de Pans, 
originally a knight from the Champagne region of France, gone on pilgrimage, come home and then returned to Jerusalem. We know he was gone back to Jerusalem because his name was written as a witness on regal proclamations over in Jerusalem in the years 1120 and then 1123 and finally in 1125 where his name as a witness had a title next to it and that title was the quote Magister Militum Templi unquote aka the master of the Knights of the Temple. So most historians generally agree that Chute de Pons had sought formal approval to create a Catholic monastic order for the use of protecting pilgrims to the Holy Land back in 1120 or so at something called the Council of Nablus. Of course, this has not stopped a score of writers saying the Templars were actually formed earlier or that there were a multitude of secrets behind the formation of the Knights Templar and lots of other wonderful conspiratorial stuff, which is rich in colour, intrigue, and sadly, most of it, utterly bonkers. But hey, never let it be said that with their cool crusader drip and people's desire for historical conspiracy theories, the Templars weren't on form to become the most discussed religious order created in Altrema during this era. Now, for me, well, someone who adores all that utter conspiratorial nonsense, and I really do, but I know it's nonsense. I'm going to utterly discount all of it and focus on the solid facts as we know them and simply add that from my own personal bias and point of view, I'll always resent the Knights Templar. Do you want to know why? Simple. They draw attention away from the best of all the Crusader knightly orders, the badass knights of St. Lazarus. Those were the terminators of the Crusader knights, suicidally brave, impervious to limb damage apparently, and with a killer reputation. But what else would you expect of a bunch of lepers who were knights, eh? Anyway, sticking with the standard story, Hughes de Pans gained permission of King Baldwin II of Jerusalem and he had just arranged to marry his daughter, the designated heir to Jerusalem, a woman called Melisandre, to Count Folk of Anjon, and the whole backstory I mentioned last chapter. And I'm saying this now just to remind listeners that events in the Crusader kingdoms may have been taking place hundreds of miles away, but they were only ever one degree of separation away from anybody here running England. The original order of Knights Templar were basically Hugh de Pons and seven others who were all related to him by blood or were his in-laws. They were granted permission to be based in the Temple Mount, the location of the Alaska Mosque and the Old Temple of Solomon, as well as the site of the single most horrendous blood-soaked massacre of hundreds of innocent Muslim women and children when the Crusaders stormed the city. Anyway, the order picked up the nickname Knights of Solomon because it was the old temple of Solomon and they turned it into their full title. Supposedly a poor order, their financial fortune shifted real fast soon after they began, with amazingly generous contributions being made, not just in the Holy Land, but also across Europe. And this was helped enormously by Hugh de Pons going on a bit of a world tour in 1127, and 1128, and that world tour included London. Yes, indeed, Hughes de Pons came to Britain, and as well as travelling up to the Scottish Kingdom and establishing a house up there, he came to Henry I, and 
Henry, ever the generous donor to the church, granted him much gold and land in Rouen, but while Henry had nothing to do with it, Hugh was given some land in London. Actually, it wasn't technically in London, it was a bit outside the city, the area we today know as Holborn. There, the Templars quickly began establishing a monastic house and a church, a round one, that is, their traditional style. The first Templar stronghold of London then was built opposite where today's Grays Inn Road stands, and it's the Easter Chancery Lane. And the first church was probably located where the Southampton buildings are. They would in time leave Holborn and move somewhere else. But this was their start, right here. And the only thing to remember them by was a pub called the Knight's Temple up in Holborn. That's now, I believe, unfortunately closed. But anyway, here we go. A little bit of the Crusades come and landed on the outskirts of London. But when it comes to London starting to stand up again and show the defiance and independence of spirit, we need to put it in the context of who was in charge and talk about the reign of King Henry I and how London was dealing with the king. As we get into the 1120s, we have to just say that for many who were alive, Henry I, for any and all of his faults, was seen as a pretty successful king by the residents of London on a whole. Why? Well, despite all the instability and especially all the wars being waged over in Normandy, England was very peaceful during his reign. Compared to the rule of William Rufus and William the Conqueror, Henry's reign saw England enter long periods of peace broken only by occasional border disputes. The land was peaceful. The land was stable. The land was boring. And while boring is bad for a historian trying to make an interesting podcast, it's a blessing for those who are living through it. It means the years pass as they should, without comment, without excitement, in work and family and the small things we find precious. Henry's reign was surprisingly good for England. Not that it was without incident, just that the incidents on the whole don't make general history books. I mean, for example, in 1124 we know the harvest was pretty bad which in turn caused a shortage of food, which in turn caused a spike in food prices, which was not helped by the fact that England was still suffering from a bullion shortage, so the quality of English coins was so diluted that, to quote one historian, a pound's worth of coins only purchased a shilling's worth of goods, which in turn led to increased theft and crime due to the poor being desperate as there's no safety net. And that led to Ralph Bassett, the Royal Justice I mentioned a couple of chapters ago, supposedly having to hang 44 thieves in one go, a new record. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle said of the year 1124, quote, The man who had any property was deprived of it by severe taxes and severe courts. The man who had none died of hunger, unquote. Apparently, the debasement of English coinage got so bad that Bishop Roger of Salisbury issued a decree that any moneyers found skimming the silver would have their right hands cut off before being castrated. The married priests issue continued to rumble on as a debate during the 1120s, with there being a 
couple of salacious tales from this decade of high-ranking bishops being discovered in bed with wives and or prostitutes, depending on who you're reading. And the contemporary historian, Henry of Huntington, whose opinion on these issues should be coloured by the fact that he was the son of a married clergyman. He gleefully reports that a papal legate who had come to England to condemn the practice of priests taking partners was found in bed with a prostitute and was forced to return back to Rome in shame. Of course, another version of this same story said that the aforementioned papal legate had visited the Bishop of Lincoln, Ranulf Flambard, and that he'd enjoyed several glasses of wine with Bishop Ranulf, and then the papal legate had made himself exceptionally familiar with Ranulf's young niece, and, well, yeah. Again, these stories are probably untrue, but they show a level of vitriol about the issues involved. However, by the mid-1120s, Henry I and his new queen had not produced any children, and as such, the question of the succession began to be asked. You basically did have a few candidates. The first was Henry's daughter, Matilda, a.k.a. the Empress. She was off the line of William the Conqueror and Alfred the Great. Had she been a man, she would have been instantly perfect for the job, but she wasn't. And as we said last chapter, when discussing the issues around the white ship, her gender was causing problems. Henry was not unaware of the risks of naming a female heir. He'd apparently consulted long and hard before doing so, but some historians who specialise in Henry I suggest that even from before he decided, there were other alternative candidates. Robert, the Earl of Gloucester, was one. He was capable, incredibly wealthy, and a trusted advisor for the king already. But he was an illegitimate son of the king, and this worked against him with with the idea of a bastard taking the throne, facing a long tradition of opposition within England. And then there was William Cleto, the king's nephew, the son of Duke Robert and technically William the Conqueror's grandson. Indeed, according to the tradition of primogeniture, William Cleto's claim to the throne of England was actually stronger than Henry I. By 1126, William Cleto was 24 years old by all accounts charming, charismatic, and with a proven military record. Henry had reached out to Cleto on at least one occasion to join his court, but the young man refused. And besides, making friendly with Cleto was always going to be hard for Henry I, not only because he'd spent so long fighting him in Normandy, but also the awkward truth was that if Henry recognised Cleto as the rightful heir to the throne, he'd have to maybe accept that Cleto had a right to be the king now. Cleto was popular and drew supporters across Henry's realms. But he died in 1128, and it's a measure of how much support he had that his Henry of Huntington actually called him the king's rightful heir to the throne. There was one other legitimate grandson of William the Conqueror at this time, Stephen of Bois the king's nephew and grandson of the conqueror via his daughter. Stephen Henry was making close to him, but there's no evidence to say that he really saw Stephen as a viable candidate for king. But he saw a way that Stephen of War could serve England in another way, and this other way immediately made him way more important to London. 
See, across the channel lay the county of Boulogne. This port was one of the most important in the region and was a central hub for trade from London into Normandy. London was very eager to reduce levies and taxes their merchants had to pay to sell goods in Boulogne. By marrying the daughter of the Count of Boulogne, Stephen would then immediately be in position to influence trade and tax with London. So the moment that union was made, London liked Stephen. He could be their guy. They had a reason to get in his good books. There is much more to Henry I's rule than just his succession issue. Henry, more than any other king before him, knew how to influence politics by using the church and gifts to the church to extend royal power. And this really ties into where Henry excelled as a king. Where he promised reform at the start of his reign, his promises had been focused upon taxation. And in this respect, he's exposed for having promised much, but having delivered nothing. But when it came to legal reform, Henry had promised little and delivered much. His greatest legacy could be argued to be the consolidation of royal justice across England. He reformed his court, the rebellious and all-powerful barons of England who King William Rufus had his hands full trying to deal with, were brought to heel under Henry I. And under his rule, there arose a new class of English land magnate upon whom political power increasingly fell. At the top of these new types of land magnates were a trinity in terms of power, Robert of Gloucester, Stephen of Bois, and Roger, Bishop of Salisbury. All three had risen to positions of great standing because of their relationship to the king and were in all ways his men. And all of this meant that the growth of royal power and the end of private warfare, you know, where one baron could make war upon another baron because they were barons and this is what barons do. And this is seen as the true triumph of Henry I's rule, his huge expansion in royal administration, becoming even more than Edward the Confessor the King, most associated with doing everything by the book and legal-like. And this is important as London was about to make a deal with Henry I that was to change the city forever. Arguably the most important deal made by Londoners and one who fundamentally altered the city's relationship with the rest of the country. In fact, it's so important, it's going to have its own chapter. And so coming up is chapter 61, whose working title is New Charter Who Dis, but will probably be called something else. This was where we explore the New Deal London's more independent spirit was going to make. And I'll leave it there. I'd like to thank you all for listening and would like to thank the kind donations of those people who've kept us going for another week and a big huge thank you to Mark for the donation on the Buy Me A Coffee website. Don't have much to say this week, I just hope you're all well and I'll return next week for another chapter in the story of London. See ya.